the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. The Malayan Emergency was a guerrilla war fought from 1948 to 1960. Australia's commitment lasted 13 years, 1950 to 1963, with all three services engaged. It was the longest continuous military commitment in Australia's history to that point, with 39 Australians killed and 27 wounded. The RAAF moved to Malaya in June of 1950, with the Army arriving in 1955. Butterworth Air Base was extended so that Canberra bombers and CAC Sabres could participate with safety. The Royal Australian Navy joined the conflict in 1955 through to 1960. Butterworth Air Base was handed to the Royal Malaysian Air Force in 1988 and the insurgency officially ended in 1989. Well, it's my privilege now to talk to Wing Commander Retired Jim Treadwell, AFC OAM. Wing Commander Jim retired. He's highly qualified and experienced Air Force pilot and leader. He flew fighters for most of his life, including meteors, sabres and mirages. Some highlights of his career were taking part in the very first sabre ferry to Butterworth in Malaya, flying on operations during the Malayan emergency deployed to Bubon in Thailand as part of the Air Defence Thailand of, uh, during the Vietnam War and then also serving Indonesia confrontation. In 1977, he resigned from the Air Force to become a farmer, a true Australian. Jim, welcome. Thank you. Jim, let's start. Why did you, you, I think you signed up in 1951. Why? Why did you choose the Air Force? I'd always been fascinated with aeroplanes. I always wanted to fly aeroplanes. Fascinated with the Air Force, I guess. Fair enough. Fair enough. And of course, you signed up in 1951 when we're involved in the the Korean War. Did that Korean well, War play a role? Well, it, it, it triggered me, actually. But as a kid, I, I'm a Mexican by birth. Uh, my father was an itinerant Victorian school teacher, and we lived up near Mildura during the war. And, of course, 2OTU, who's here at Williamtown, was at, at Mildura at that stage of the game. And there were aeroplanes flying all over the place. So as a kid, I was absolutely fascinated and uh, one day I went for a ride in an aeroplane at Moravan and as soon as I got my backside off the ground I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, Now uh, I saw an ad in the papers, Korean War and of course a lot of blokes lost their lives in the Korean War and the Air Force was, was, was short of pilots. So there was an ad in the paper for air crew, I applied I got a telegram, which I still have, which said, would I jolly uh, accept signal trading? Now, in those days, the air crew, there were three categories of air crew, pilot, navigator, and signaler. 
Now, because I'd done a lot of radio work, I guess I was sort of selected as a singular, but I wanted to be a pilot. And the fellow I was working with in, uh, in the theatre had been in the Air Force, and I said, what'll I do? And he said, well, you're in, you're selected for aircrew. Say yes, <laughs> when you get in, tell them you want to be a pilot. This is exactly what I did. So got to Point Cook, 1951. First thing I did, I fronted up to the chief ground instructor, which is a fellow called Coombs, and said, sir, I want to be a pilot. Oh, he said, do your signalist course, do as well as you can, and you'll have every opportunity of coming back and doing a pilot's course, which, of course, was a great load of old wallop. <laughs> so in I went. I worked like stink. I got my signalist wing, proficient with special distinction. And then I, I, had a, I was posted over to 11 Squadron over in West Australia onto Neptunes. I had a car, sold the car, went down to the local aero club and learned to fly. So when you were posted to 11 Squadron, yes. uh, were you actually involved in the Neptune Maritime Reconnaissance Group? Is that yes. what you were doing? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Actually, I, it was really... Uh, I'm rather pleased now that I did it because the Neptune was the first weapon system that we ever had in, in the Air Force. The uh, have the APS-20 radar, which could detect uh, ships out to 200 miles. Gee. The, oh, yeah, it was quite an aeroplane. It had the electronic countermeasure equipment. It was quite a bird, quite a bird. Very interesting aeroplane. Did you learn to fly on the Neptune? No, no. no, no. You know, so no, in no. 1955, that's when you actually became, were being taught to be a pilot. Well, no, well, I, I had a, got a private pilot's licence. See, I've sold the car. It cost me £3.10 an hour, I think it was. Just I used to, to try and build up hours, I used to go around the fence at the uh, uh, Malins. There were always people of a weekend hanging over the fence. And I'd say, do you want to go for a ride in an aeroplane? And they'd sort of say yes. And I'd say, right, for a pound, and I'd take them for a ride, and I'd get an hour's flying. I could put in my logbook. Uh, and made Driving. money at the same time. No, no, I wasn't ever making money. All I wanted to do was to get hours in the logbook, because you had to have a certain number of hours to get a private pilot's licence. And then later, a certain number of hours to get a commercial pilot's licence. Right. I think it was 100. So okay. I finished up, I got a commercial pilot's licence. There's the logbooks there. Great Caesar's ghost. I wish I this wish this was film because you should see the size of this logbook. It's it's absolutely and, fantastic. And, and, and instructors rating. Then I applied for a pilot's. Now I applied because I, because I'd been offered a job as a flying instructor. I uh, 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 requested a discharge from the Royal Australian Air Force. At that stage, again, I was a flight sergeant. Right. Flight sergeant. Flight sergeant. Singular. And they knocked me back from it, wouldn't get a discharge. Then, about a couple of months later, uh, I was the first bloke ever to come back and do a pilot's course. So Fantastic. I did a signals course, then the RAA pilot's Did course. you do an air gunnery course as well? Yes. 
Well, that was part of the signalist course. That was great. Fabulous. Yeah. In Lincoln's. Oh, marvellous. Yeah. Fabulous. Okay, so what's the leap into learning to fly with the Air Force? Girls, you see. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I oh, mustn't forget oh, the girls. Oh. <laughs> I mustn't forget the girls. But what, were you, what was your first Royal Australian Air Force plane you actually got in to fly yourself? A Tiger Moth. A Tiger Moth. Uh, onto Wirraway. And then when I came here to Willystown, uh, Vampires, then I was posted into 75 Squadron onto Meteors. Meteors. And then from Meteors, then I was on about the second Sabre course here and onto Sabres. But, Jim, compare for me, you've said Vampire, you've yeah. said Meteor, yeah. and you've said the Avon Sabres or the Sabres. Yeah. Of those three aircraft, what are your fondest memories? They were all great memories. I mean, you know, to be able to fly... I mean, we were flying the first jet aeroplanes in Australia. That was Vamp the Vampire? Yeah. Vampire. All right, it's September. It's 1958. And you're off to the Malayan Emergency. Tell us about the Malayan Emergency. The, the Malayan Emergency was all related to a fellow called Ching Ping. Now, Ching Ping had an order of the British Empire, would you believe? Now, it's said, but who knows, that he was promised all sorts of things in regard to, after the war, you'll be part of the government of Malaya. The Malayan emergency really was all about the, the uh, uh, Jinping got this band of people together. They went into the jungle and they tried to destroy the, the uh, economy of Malaya. They did this by murdering plantation owners mm -hmm. because rubber was the backbone of the M M Malayan economy. They actually murdered the governor of Malaya, Sir, Her Sir Henry Gurney. Because, see, they had all this ammunition and things mm. that the Poms had dropped them and supplies in the jungle. And the plantation owners formed their own little armies and things. As far as we were concerned, we were up there, part of the Malayan emergency, and it was fabulous. Here we go, overseas trip. Marvellous. hoop de doo OK, so you went there with Sabres, correct? Sabres, yeah. Yeah, OK. So you leave... Did you leave Williamtown? Where did you leave in Australia? Well... We, 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 the Indonesians were being a, a bit funny. I don't know why, but we, they wouldn't let us fly across Indonesia. So we, we went from here to Darwin, refuelled at Darwin. Darwin then across over to Dutch New Guinea to yep. a place called Biak. Refuelled at Biak, then up to the bottom end of the Philippines to a place called Guian. Then from Guyane across to Labuan in Borneo. Right. Then from Labuan then to Butterworth. Yeah. What was your role as fighter pilots with Sabres in the Malaysian incident? Okay. Well, we only ever carried out one strike. But it was an interesting sort of... Every, every day, be, the Brits would bring out an intel, and it was quite detailed. The one uh, strike that we did was... At, on a terrorist camp just near Kuala Lumpur. And there were uh, uh, 77 Squadron, that's four aeroplanes. Uh, we did this strike on the terrorist camp. Now, a fighter aeroplane, you, you're sort of cruising along about 350 snorts, knots, that is. Yep. 
<laughs> Thank over, you. Over the jungle, you can't really see anything much, right? Yeah, so, what well, you, you you couldn't see a terrorist camp. So what they employed was a Ford air controller, who was a a, a British Army bloke in an Oster aeroplane. Yep. Right. And he marked the target. And what we bombed was just a plume of smoke. Right. Now, as it turned out, the uh, uh, we destroyed the target. Destroyed the target. Uh, uh, it, it turned out there were no terrorists there, at any rate. But we came off the target, going back to Butterworth, when we got word over the radio that the weather had clamped and we were diverted to Singapore. So down to Singapore we went um, and uh, to Changi. And I remember it well. We landed at Changi, and old Tazzy Carswell in three squadron lobbed in short of the runway at Changi. And there was PSP. Now, PSP is metal stuff. On the runway? Uh, off the end of the off runway. Off the end, right, okay. PSP had been used during the war around the islands to establish uh, air, like landing ships. Yep. And this pair, he lobbed in short old Tassie. Mate, it must have frightened hell out of everybody in Singapore. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, in we went, and we were, they had a transit mess thing. Then it was a Thursday, we'd been paid. I was the only bloke that had any money. <laughs> and here, all these hungry, thirsty pilots. And I was the only bloke with any dough. And you, so you helped everyone else get they intoxicated. Paid, they paid me back. Yeah, they paid you back. Paid That's you. good. That's good. Let me, Jim, go back to Butterworth, and you've given me a, a fascinating photograph that I'd like you to explain for me. There are four flying officers, four yeah. flying officers, and they're being addressed by obviously an officer. And you've said this person was abandoned Earl. Tell me about that man, abandoned Earl. We call him the abandoned Earl. But he's the Earl of Bandon, that's his title, and he was the Commander-in-Chief of the Far East Air Force. And we at Butterworth were part of the Far East Air Force. So he was the big white chief. Right. Now, he would come up to Butterworth to inspect, uh, and he liked the odd tipple. <laughs> so he, he, he was a great bloke, actually. He would... Uh, First thing he was down to the sergeant's mess, into the bar. Then he would come up to the officer's mess, again into the bar. And he'd get all the young pilot officers around him and tell dirty stories. <laughs> but he was just a fabulous character. Jump away from the Malayan emergency, because I know in January 1960, you became a test pilot. Yeah. What did that involve for you? What were you, what were you testing and how difficult or easy was it? Well, I, uh, I was posted from Malaya, 78 wing, to Richmond to an organisation called Tessens Ferry. It was part of a large organisation called an air, Two Aircraft Depot. Now, Two Aircraft Depot consists of about a thousand blokes at a huge, big, jolly mm. workshops and things. And what they did was uh, did major servicings on aeroplanes, meteors, uh, Dakotas, Vampires, or not vampires, 
we, uh, wind, uh, not wind, we're always... We're always, we're, yeah. Aeroplanes like that. Yep. Now, when they pulled them to bits and they stuck them back together again, our job, there were two of us at Test and Ferry, was to test them to make sure that the things would work. And there was a test schedule, you see. It had to do so many knots and so many this and so many that. So that was the, the test pilot job. The other, uh, also at that time, is that Woomera was in full swing and the, the uh, and you'll see out here in Fighter World, there's a Bloodhound missile. Now firing Bloodhound missiles at meteor targets. Right. Now these meteor targets, they were F-15 meteors, early meteors, they were set out from England to Bankstown. Right. To ferry aviation at Bankstown to be put together. Then they would go then to Edinburgh, be fitted with radio control gear, and they were flown by from the ground, and they were the targets. Now, our job at Test and Ferry, when the ferry people had put the meteors together, right, was to go and fly them, test fly them. <laughs> but they are interesting aeroplanes in that they were the very, very first early jets. They had no ejection seats, no, no uh, pressurisation or anything like that, and very limited endurance. So, yeah, I used to fly those. That was a test. And you're still here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. What, why, why were you sent back to Malaya? Because in 1963, from that, okay. you went back to Malaya. What was that all about? Okay. Well, from, uh, uh, you see, I, I was a singler. Yep. I'd become a pilot. The thing I didn't want to do was to become a, an RAAF flying instructor. But being a silly old billy goat, I tried to get the, the other wing. So I applied for an advanced navigation course. So I, this is from Richmond. Yes. Richmond. The vampire, uh, the Mark 30, uh, the other thing we used to do at Richmond was to accept the Mark 35, which was the twin vampires, who were, they were made at Bankstown, what, we'd go and test fly them and accept them into the service. The vampire program finished. Yep. Right. So I had to go somewhere. So I applied for an advanced navigation course. So down to sail, I went to the School of Air Navigation, did a six months advanced navigation course. And this is where I became a nav instructor and terrorised people like poor old Ringo. I was posted. From, the, from Richmond over to Pierce in West Australia yes. as a ground navigation instructor. And I was over there terrorising Ringo. Right. And other learning pilots yeah. and co here. And then the, the wing navigation officer, see, there was a wing staff up in Butterworth, killed himself. He ejected, uh, had, uh, he ran out of noise off the end of the runway, ejected too low, killed himself. Oh, so, as it turned out, I was the only bloke around the place who had the navigation qualifications and had flown sabres. So, so back to the confrontation. Back, back well, yeah. And yeah. how different... 63. How was. different was it flying in the confrontation between Malaya and Indonesia as opposed to the Malayan experience? Oh, okay. Well, confrontation was a completely different sort of kettle of fish because uh, Butterworth was being threatened. See, 
the Indo, the, the Russians had given the Indonesians IL-28s, a bomber. They had MiG-21s. Uh, MiG they were based over in Medan, which was only just across the Straits of Malacca, only about 150-odd miles from Butterworth. Mm-hmm. So Butterworth was under threat from the air. The Indians also dropped paratroopers down around Johor. Yep. Uh, uh, so it was a bit sort of a, 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 a tricky time. And what 224 grip under the FIA, we had aircraft on alert, alert two, with hot guns and hot sidewinders from dawn to dusk every day. Mm. So we'd get up about six o'clock in the morning and we'd be uh, uh, alert two, you've got to go uh, sitting in the cockpit got hot guns, hot sidewinders, airmen were all jolly, uh, everything organised. Got two minutes to get airborne. We had a telescramble, it was a radar station at Butterworth, and a telescramble, in other words, the, the, the air defence controller in the, the uh, radar station could talk direct to us, and the voice would say, right, two aircraft, start engines, scramble. Vector 030, climb to Angel 30. You had two minutes to get airborne. And wow. We were, and we were on alert. And then of, a, of an evening, to, to, because it, the Sabre was a day fighter, you had to see another aircraft to shoot him down. The Mirage was the first aircraft that had radar that could pick up an enemy aircraft in cloud or at night. So Sabre was a day fighter. Okay. At night, the... POMs set up javelins from Singapore and they took over the alert status at night. So were you only in the Sabres in the confrontation or yes. were you in... So no, you no, only the flew the Sabres? Sabres, yes. And w- did you actually take part in any of those confrontations? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, yeah oh, yeah. We, we, we'd be alert. Never ever jolly uh, saw an Indonesian aircraft. It'd be, you see... What they did was they established a thing like a, an air defence, uh, an ADIS it's called, mm-hmm. an air defence identification zone. Any aeroplane going into that zone has to follow a certain track. If he gets off track, uh, uh, then it, uh, it becomes an unidentified aircraft yeah, yeah. and the air defence commander would scramble us so most of the scrambles had turned out to be a pommy aircraft or something like that, off track. Mm. And what we'd do, we two aircraft, we'd scramble, we'd do a vis ident it was called. The leader would go in and have a squiz to see what the aeroplane yeah. The number two man would sit back at sidewinder firing range, so if it turned out to be in the aircraft, then he could shoot him down. So after the Malaya confrontation... In 1965, you come back to Williamtown and then you got involved in, what, the Mirage conversion Mirage, train? Yeah. Well, I went with 65. I was sent to England to attend the Royal Air Force College of Air Warfare to do a, a weapons course. Right. So I came back here and did a Mirage course. And what was involved in doing Was it just learning how to fly a Mirage as opposed to a Sabre? Yeah. How diffi- and, and to operate the Mirage. That they could memorise said the same as a day fighter. Yep. The Mirage had air intercept radar. So it could do night flying? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. And, and the air intercept radar, 
it was a different, completely different role. Yeah. yeah, you did mention before we started chatting. You did mention that the Sabre had uh, powered Operated stick control, control yeah. as opposed to manual. Yeah, How, what was that like up here in your head, making the change from not power to power in the Sabre, flying it in terms? Well. <laughs> It was a bit tricky, actually, yeah. <laughs> because because the sabre was dynamically unstable, right? And you could get yourself into a JC manoeuvre. JC being Jesus, Jesus Christ. Cr- yeah, okay. Now, the JC manoeuvre, Greg would know all about this, the aircraft would rear up, right? And you'd try and, and, and you'd get out of sync, and it'd rear up, shove the pole forward, but already the aeroplane is going out, so you're out so it's finished up doing doing that. Up and down, up and yeah. down, up and now, down. It's, that's all right at, at height. You can just let everything go and it'll settle itself out. But near the ground, different kettle of fish. Because you could end up in the ground. I remember the the famous JC, oh famous JC, was a bloke called Ken Jansen. And it happened early in the Sabre days, and he was doing a demonstration, Air Force Week at Laverton, and he got into a JC inverted. He pulled something like Ringo, about 8G, positive G, and about 3 negative G. Overstressed the aeroplane, it never flew again. It was quite a... Get into a JC, I only got into a couple. But the beauty about a JC, Jesus Christ, that he was resurrected, so he did come back to life. So you were still here and you're still involved. Yeah. That's fantastic. So you, it, you know, it was a tricky, it was uh, an unstable aeroplane. At height, you know, it was very unstable. Now, in this trip, and there's photographs here, of Sabre Ferry going to uh, Butterworth, the section I was in was led by a bloke who finished up as the chief of the air staff, a fellow called Newham, Jake Newham. Mm. And uh, we, uh, we had uh, a Canberra bomber out the front giving us weathers, OK? Now, we launched from, uh, from BIAC and we got past the point of no return and, and uh, uh, BIAC clamped. So Jake climbed and climbed, and we finished up at about 50,000 feet. Yeah. Ouch. Right. So I'll go back a bit. And it was really bad. We had no topos, Ringo. We had no topos. But when we were back, I knew the, uh, uh, the navigator of the camera, black called... Uh, Hunt, Bruce Hunt, oh, Bruce Hunt. And I said to him, do you ever have to have a topo of BAC? And he said, yeah. So I got a topo and I gave it to Jake. Now, we're climbing and, and the other thing, <laughs> the Yanks had a uh, an air-sea rescue aircraft called a duck butt, it was, <laughs> at, based at BAC, just in case we went into the drink. And the duck butt had a, 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 a direction finding yes. device, right? So, and it could give us a, a, a steerage. So Jake called up the duck butt, and the duck butt was giving him steerings. But the bloke that was operating it 
didn't realise that you could get a reciprocal. So he's telling Jake to just keep coming, when in fact, we should have been going in the opposite. In the opposite direction. Now, thank heaven, with this topper, there was a break in the cloud. There's Jake Newell there. There's a photograph of him. A break in the cloud, and he happened to look down, and he saw this airfield, and he rolled over, and down he went. With the four of us on his wing, four of us on his wing, we were <laughs> roaring down through this tiny hole in the cloud. We could see, and Biak was near the uh, Lady Gulf. Yep. Lady Gulf. At any rate, we sort of leveled out, sort of. There was a lot of cloud and a lot of rain. At any rate, we got in. That was a bit tricky. And so if the Sabre was so, I won't say difficult to fly, but temperamental... Why was it so popular? Well, what choice did we have? Fair answer. Fair answer. See, what choice did we have? It was, you know, it was uh, a quantum leap forward for the Royal Australian Air Force. You know, we built about here. They were built at CAC. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let, let's then go to the Mirage. You've, you've done your training. You're now in a Mirage. Yeah. And it, would, it could fly Glorious. at night. It had all the, the yes. appropriate equipment. Glorious aeroplane. Glorious. Tell me why. Well, it was a beautiful thing to fly. Very challenging. Uh, uh, well, just looking at, at, at aeroplane. Uh, a vampire, final approach speed over the end of the runway here, the vampire, was 105 knots. Okay. Final approach speed in a the, in the meteor, 110. Sabre, 135. Mirage, 185. But it had a drag chute. Without the drag chute, you'd never pulled it up. See, you touched it, but you didn't... You hadn't touched it at the right speed. Still, ring I'll tell you. The what old about drag chute pulled you up. What about its flying dynamics in, in terms beautiful, of... Beautiful, beautiful aeroplane. Manoeuvrability? Oh, yeah. beautiful, beautiful. So as a fighter aircraft... Beautiful. Of all the planes you've been involved in, would that rank as one of the better fighter aircrafts? Uh, I'd say Sabre was the best fighter. But the Mirage had good air, air, uh, uh, dogfight capabilities. Mirage conversion training, you love the Mirage. And in 1972, a big year for you, you become wing commander. I graduated from the signalist course as a sergeant. Then I became a warrant officer for a day. Now, I was a warrant officer for a day because I went straight from warrant officer to flying officer. I was never a pilot officer. All I wanted to do was fly aeroplanes. Rank never meant anything to me. Yeah, but... Didn't but matter a big rat's backside. I understand that, Jim, but as wing commander, yeah. you are also then responsible for a lot of other people. So what, yeah. what kinds of things did you feel in terms of sharing that responsibility in developing that res developing those men and women who were, were no doubt under you. What, what was that role like for you? Nothing, because as a squadron leader, I'd been the commanding officer of 76 squadron, right. the commanding officer of 77 squadron. In fact, I started 77 squadron with the Mirage. Now it's 230 people. So it, during that period, I was looking after people and very, very conscious of looking after people, kicking people in the backside if they needed it. 
giving people a boost if they needed it. So becoming a wing commander didn't mean a thing. In 1977, you resigned. Yeah. Uh, resigned for a particular reason? Well, the Air Force had lost its way. See, the Air Force gave me... I, I was about 19, 20 when I came into the Air Force. The Air Force gave me my principles, gave me my sense of purpose, gave, taught me everything, everything I knew. And, and in, in that time, it started to lose its way. People were more interested in rank and position. And yeah. I was interested in people and flying aeroplanes. No, that's, why, that's why you're popular. All right, you've resigned. But hey, 1981, you re-enlist. What happened? <laughs> well, I was asked, the AOC of the base here was a fellow, his photographs there, a fellow called Simmons, and I got a call to say, uh, would I come back in and establish a Citizen Air Force Squadron, Reserve Squadron, 26th City of Newcastle Squadron. So uh, I said yes. Do you remember getting your OAM in 2007? What was came a bit of a shock, yeah. Why? Of all the things well, you'd done. I wasn't done. expecting anything like that. But... Jim, well-deserved. Now a farmer. Yeah. Do you look up when you hear a plane? Always. Always. Still do. 2021. What sound of a plane do you prefer? Hear that? Glorious sound. That's it. It makes the heart beat faster. Yeah. I must say, if I hear noise, I always look. Jim, this has been a true privilege to be able to talk to someone who has such a love of flying. 2021, of course, is a very important year because it's the centenary of the Royal Australian Air Force and you have played a significant part in that history since 1951. You've been involved in confrontations with the Royal Australian Air Force that many Australians, young Australians today, don't know about the Malaysian emergency. They don't know about the confrontation. They don't know about the fact that we're in Ubon in Thailand. Yes, they've probably got a knowledge of, a little bit of knowledge of Korea and maybe Vietnam, but we have been involved in so much and Australia has done so much. And for, for a, a small force, we punch well above our weight. And I want to thank you for your role and thank you for the privilege of talking to you today, Jim. Well, thank you. Thank you. It was lovely to meet you. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. 
If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.